I invite you all to join me now in a moment of prayer. God who delivered your people out of Egypt. God who loved your people when we had nothing. God of resurrection and new life for whom we gather to give thanks for all you have done for us. We ask that you open our hearts and minds to continually receive your ever-flowing goodness and share that goodness. We long to know your presence even in the most difficult of times. Remind us all of the times that you fought for us and how you're still fighting for us now, loving us always. Open our eyes to see the joy of your son's resurrection and dwell in that joy as we anticipate the new life of Easter. You are a God worthy of our praise and thanksgiving. We pray that you will allow us freedom to run, freedom to dance, and freedom to live for you. Fill us with your spirit that we may demonstrate our joy, demonstrate our faithfulness by audacious acts of love and service to our neighbors as your instruments. Empower us to break barriers and be bold in our demonstrations of faith in your love as Jesus broke barriers to heal and raise from the dead and unite all people in love. Allow us peace of mind and proper discernment to judge the world you created and all within it as worthy of love and grant us bravery to give that love. Let that view of love impact and infiltrate into all the decisions we make to reflect our identity made new in Christ. Make us shameless in our ceaseless boasting of you and in our joy because of the salvation your son Jesus has given us. Amen. We sing, as you can tell, I, I caught them off guard, but anyway, I normally don't speak before choir sings or I sing a solo or anything like that, but I wanted to uh, highlight this song. Uh, I told the choir, I look for songs, and I love when I find songs that tell the whole gospel story, and that's what this one does, from before Jesus came till his second coming. So this was, and I think this will become a standard uh, like last week's Deep, Deep Love of Jesus, I think we'll be singing this more than once.
chaplain at Orange Correctional Center in Hillsboro. I've been there since June of 2020, so almost three years. And um, I'm not going to talk a lot about the prison ministry this morning. Um, Pastor Christopher is really linked in with us, so if you want any more information, you can go to him or you can go through him to get to me. But I will say, um, I always like to, to, when I get the chance to, to speak to the churches that support us, just to extend my gratitude, um, I am a community-supported chaplain, which means that I don't get funds from the state. I'm not paid by the state. I'm not a state employee. So I depend upon um, churches like this one in the community to allow me to do what I do, which is something that I absolutely love to do and something that I find so fulfilling. And so uh, I just want to, first of all, just extend gratitude to you for that. I think you guys have been involved in bringing some worship services at the prison in the past, and so that is now starting back up. And I think some of, you, some of the folks from here are actually coming in in June so um, to provide worship service for the men there, so we're looking forward to that. Um, it was a really bleak couple of years and a really lonely couple of years, those first couple of years of COVID, when basically I was in there by myself and we couldn't bring any volunteers in. But we have slowly started that process back of bringing some volunteers in. I mean, the men didn't even have visitors for the first almost year and a half. So they didn't even get to see their families. So we're hoping, uh, I'm very hesitant to use the word normal because I don't think any of us know what normal is gonna look like. But we're, we're eager to kind of at least move out of this phase that we've been in for this time period. So. Again, just want to extend thank you to that. If you have any specific questions about the prison ministry, uh, anything that you want to know, then feel free to grab me after the service, and I'll be glad to talk to you about that. Okay, now that that's behind me. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, and uh, I'm going to read a what's really a beautiful little story there in the Gospel of John in verses 1 through 11. 
But before we get into the scripture this morning, I kind of want to give you an idea of where we're headed. So I want to talk this morning for a few minutes about acts of devotion and acts of service, which these are things that we as Christians, as individuals, but also as like a collective community of Christians, these are things that God actually requires for us to have, right? Acts of devotion and acts of service. Now, I know that really acts of devotion and acts of service are kind of all tangled up together and you can't really separate them to kind of feed off of each other. But just for the purpose of discussion this morning, I want to separate out acts of devotion and acts of service. So when I mention acts of devotion, I'm speaking about things that happen that are just between you and God. Okay? And acts of service, obviously the things that we're called to do in terms of serving within the church, but also going outside the church to help those who are in need, giving of our time, our energy, our talents, our money, to help meet felt needs. So these are acts of service. So let's get participatory here for just a moment. What would be some examples of acts of devotion? Y'all can yell them out. Prayer. What else? Scripture reading. I heard one over here. Love. Yeah, love between you and God, expressions of love. What about fasting? Nobody wants to talk about fasting. That's why nobody. <laughs> whenever I talk about this and people start listening to acts of devotion, nobody wants to, like, oh, yeah, fasting. Prayer. Those are. I think would be considered um, the cardinal ones. Prayer, scripture reading, fasting, meditation is another one. That, that word kind of scares people sometimes because we associate that solely with Eastern religions. But meditation has a long history in the Christian faith. And if you don't like the word meditation, that's fine. How about just sitting by yourself in quiet? Getting alone. And, and I think especially getting alone, getting outside, especially as the, as the spring is coming, getting outside in God's creation, surrounded by the beauty of God's creation. For me, that helps me feel closer to God, to get alone, to get quiet, to reflect upon the works of God, to reflect upon the things that God has done for you, to pour your heart out in prayer, to fast, to study scripture, and not to just study scripture, y'all, to, to, to gain knowledge, as important as that is, but to actually study scripture and avail ourselves to scripture so that we might be conformed into the image of Christ, so that we might become more like Jesus, really is the root purpose of studying scripture. So these are acts of devotion. Okay, now acts of service are, are pretty obvious. And I'm sure, just by looking at y'all's bulletin, y'all are involved in a lot of acts of service. This is basically anything that you do as a Christian, as an individual, or as a church to help other people. And it could even be within your home. These things that Jesus calls us to do, that he models for us, because he did have a life of service, and he had a life of devotion. So I need to... Um, confess something. 
I'm in a season of my life where when I'm really honest and as I'm thinking about this, this message and preparing this message that God is speaking to me that my acts of devotion and my acts of service are out of balance. In other words, I've got lots of acts of service. You know, I get paid to do something that's an act of service. That's always dangerous. And it's usually at the expense of my devotional life. And the reason for that, y'all, is nobody's going to ask you, probably, nobody's going to ask you how much time you've spent in prayer, how much time you've spent in the Word. Have you meditated? Have you fasted? Nobody's going to ask you that because they probably didn't fast either. But, but people are going to ask us about what we're doing, and what we're doing is more obvious and apparent to people. And so we feel compelled to make sure that we have acts of service. But we have to make sure that our spiritual lives are not starved. Going back to, to the example of Jesus, who is our model, his life was bursting at the seams with acts of service. Were they not? That song that we sang just talked about him being healer, teacher. He's going around, he's teaching the people, he's healing people, he's relieving people of their suffering, all these acts of compassion. But what did Jesus do over and over and over again? He got away. He got by himself. Just he and the Father. Our acts of service have to be rooted in a life of devotion. There have to be regular times where we get by ourselves with God. Our intimacy with God cannot suffer because of our ministry. Our ministry cannot cause our intimacy with God to suffer. Okay, so let's read this passage from John chapter 12 which I think displays this in a beautiful way. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly ointment of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to take what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. Let her keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the great crowd of the Jews learned that he was there, they came not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. A little bit of background here on this passage. So this story takes place in the village of Bethany, which is about two miles outside of the city of Jerusalem. What had happened right before this story takes place? It tells us right there. Lazarus was raised from the dead. 
So now Jesus has essentially returned to the scene of the crime. It's only a few days before Passover, so thousands of Jews are flooding into the city, many of them passing right through Bethany, which, remember, is only two miles outside the city of Jerusalem. This is important because during Passover, there were thousands of Jews who lived in a radius around Jerusalem who were required to come into Jerusalem. So there's a lot more people in Jerusalem than there normally would be. And it says in this passage, it's very interesting, a lot of these people wanted to see Jesus, but who else did they want to see? They wanted to see Lazarus. This guy that they knew died, maybe they were there when he was put in the tomb, and now everybody's saying he's sitting at the table eating. So the people wanted to see Jesus, but they also wanted to see Lazarus. The ministry of Jesus, as brief as it was, some say only one year, some say three years. Either way, it wasn't a very long ministry. But it had already caused quite a stir. But raising Lazarus from the dead turned it into a full-blown frenzy. There were crowds of people who were wanting to get close to Jesus because he had raised him from the dead, and there were those who were wanting to kill Jesus for the same reason. As word about Jesus spread, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the religious elite, could feel that they were losing control over the people. And isn't that what the religious elite often do? They exercise control over the people. And here Jesus comes preaching and demonstrating this message of liberation, this message of having each of us having immediate access to the Creator. And that is a threat. You notice, too, really, it was a threat to the political powers and it was a threat to the religious powers. So these two powers, these two systems that can't agree on anything, the one thing they can agree on is this Jesus guy has got to go because he was a threat to both of them. He was a threat to their capacity to exercise control over the people. Let's look briefly at how each person in this story responds to the presence of Jesus. The first person that we see in this story is Martha. What is Martha doing? Cooking. Somebody said cooking. Yes, she's serving. She's doing, she's serving. And isn't this what we always see Martha doing? This, this famous story in Luke chapter 10 where Martha's getting everything together, Mary's sitting over there at the feet of Jesus, and Martha gets mad. And she tells Jesus, she doesn't even tell Mary herself, tell her to come help me. So Martha is serving, and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha is a servant, which is a good thing. Please don't, don't hear me saying that it's bad to serve. Being a servant is a wonderful, beautiful thing, but we find out in this passage, as we also did in Luke 10, that there are some things, y'all, that are more important than serving. One thing in particular, and that is intimacy. Intimacy with God. Remember what Jesus said. No, I'm, no Martha, I'm not going to tell her to get up because what you're doing is good, but she's chosen, chosen what was best. There are all these things that we have to do that we should do that are good for us to do, but the primary thing that we must do, y'all, is make sure that we are cultivating an intimate relationship with our Creator 
through Christ Jesus. We have to do that. Our lives, our private lives, even if nobody else knows about it, have to be marked by acts of devotion. Acts of quiet, which by the way, society, this Babylonian society that we live in, is not going to help us with this. We live in a materialistic, frenetic society that is hell-bent on keeping us from the feet of Jesus, keeping us moving, keeping us possessing, buying, consuming, doing, but not communing. Remember that Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things will be added unto you. Nothing wrong with these things. There's just something wrong with seeking these things first. So that's Martha. I bet Martha could cook, though, don't y'all think? I bet Martha could cook. I bet she could throw down in the kitchen. Okay, the second person that we see here is Martha's sister, Mary. We learn in the details of this story that Mary has poured perfume on the feet of Jesus that was equal to a year's wage. The amount of perfume and the type of perfume that she used was worth about 300 denarii, which probably doesn't mean anything to us, but it was the equivalent to several thousand, up to $10,000 in our currency. Can you imagine that? Like, I, when I hear that, y'all, I'm a little bit with Judas. I'm like, whoa, that's a lot of money. That's some expensive perfume that you're pouring out. We'll come back to this later. But the characteristic that defined Martha was constant service, right? Constant service. The characteristic that defines Mary is extravagant devotion. Extravagant devotion. There was nothing that was too costly. There was nothing that she couldn't sacrifice. There was nothing that she had that was worth missing out on intimacy with Jesus. Extravagant devotion. This is a little bit of a side note, but since it's in this story, we have to look at Judas. Because Judas is here too, right? Judas sort of speaks for himself. What is she doing? That's a lot of money. That money could be used to give to the poor. And we, we see his secret motive was he was the one who was holding the money bag and he was stealing from it. So he's like, that money could have gone in here and I could steal from it. Here's a, this is a hypothesis, okay, what I'm going to offer now. I like the word hypothesis, I like the way it sounds, and I especially like the definition, an educated guess. I really like that. Okay, so Judas is given the assignment of holding the money bag, right? Imagine you're in a group and you guys have some kind of income, and you have to pick somebody to hold the money. First of all, y'all don't really know me that well, but you're not good. Please do not pick me to hold the money. I will lose the money or do something with the money I shouldn't, so somebody else hold the money. You're going to pick the person who's most responsible with money. Isn't that right? You're just going to be like, who, who wants to hold the money bag? And then the guy who raises his hand first, that's the guy you don't want to hold the money bag. You're going to pick the one who, is the, who seems to be the most responsible, the one who is best with money. So here's my hypothesis. At one point, Judas was the most conscientious with the money. 
Judas was the one who was the most trustworthy with the money. That's why they gave him the job to hold the money. And here's a lesson about money. It's okay to have money in your hand. Nothing wrong with that. But it's not okay to have money in your heart. And you have to be really careful and mindful because money's sneaky and it'll crawl up your arm and get into your heart while you're not looking. And I think at some point, again, this is my hypothesis, I think at some point Judas became corrupted by the love of money that wasn't there before he became a thief, though he didn't start out that way. You wonder why they didn't let Jesus hold the money. Not going to let Jesus. Jesus is going to give all the money away. So they know they're not going to let Jesus hold the money. Okay, that was a little bit of a, a side note there. So every time we see Mary in the presence of Jesus, y'all, now this is true, and you can look through the Gospels. Every time we see Mary of Bethany in the presence of Jesus, she is at his feet. Luke chapter 10. Martha's serving, she gets upset, whereas Mary at his feet. John 11, when Jesus comes to see about Lazarus before he has raised Lazarus from the dead, everybody is in grief. They tell Mary the teacher is here, Mary runs out, what does she do? She falls at his feet. And then here in John 12, we see her again at his feet, pouring this costly perfume, anointing him for his burial. We always see Mary at the feet of Jesus, and it always makes people mad. Think about that. In Luke 10, it made Martha mad. In John 12, it makes Judas mad. Martha was only thinking about service. Judas was only thinking about money. Neither one of them had time for devotion. And the fact that Mary did made them angry. Here's the lesson, and I'm... I'm getting ready to wrap it up. Devotion is not efficient. That's one of the reasons that it's the first thing to go in our lives because we live in this materialistic society that is so obsessed with efficiency at the expense of everything else, and devotion is not efficient. But it is essential. It is absolutely the most essential thing when it comes to our relationship with God, when it comes to our life here on this earth. Our devotion to God, our intimacy with God, our experience of his presence is the most essential thing. Acts of devotion, y'all, are not a waste of time. I can remember uh, early in my ministry, if maybe this is just me, and it could be because I'm a little weird, but people would walk into my office and I was reading my Bible. Now, I'm, I'm working in a church as a pastor. People would walk in and see me reading my Bible or praying or something. That would feel embarrassed because they caught me not doing anything. That's messed up. But that's how insidious it is. So please understand that this is the most essential thing to keep coming back. Because, y'all, if we have all these acts of service, but there's no act of devotion to back it up, what is it rooted in? What is our life of service rooted in? Only a life of devotion can truly sustain a life of service.
Why do you think Jesus was able to do all the stuff he did? Don't you think there was a connection to all these times that he spent in private, these times that he spent alone in the dark, pouring out his heart, communing with his father? If you do not have time to spend at the feet of Jesus, then soon you will not have energy for anything else. May our acts of service, may our lives of service, may our good deeds, and may they be many, but may they be rooted in love and devotion to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your goodness to us. We thank you for your presence here with us. We thank you for your providence, your provision. And uh, God, maybe this morning we just need to repent. Maybe we look at our lives and we see a lot of good deeds. And that's wonderful, but maybe we see atrophy in our devotional life. Maybe you're asking us this morning, but where are your prayers? I see your deeds, but where are your prayers? Where is the time that we used to spend together? Draw us into that. Compel us. I pray right now, God, for myself and for everybody else in here and everyone that we represent, that you would give us a hunger, a hunger for your presence a hunger to spend time with you, a hunger to have sustained contact with you that would surpass any other hunger that we might have. We pray that you would do this for us as an expression of your love for us by way of your Holy Spirit. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.